0: Welcome to World Oil's oil field electrification technology podcast, sponsored by Joliet Electric Motors, powering today's oil field for tomorrow's energy. Welcome back, everybody. This is Jim Watkins from World Oil. And I'm Shane Hackenberg with Joliet Electric
1: Motors. Shane, it almost sounds like you forgot your last name, man.
0: Well, you know, it's i have had a, at least a whiskey or two, so <laughs> it's possible.
1: That's right, because we're here at the wonderful Blend Bar again recording. This is our favorite place to record podcasts. It's in the woodlands. If you haven't been there, its primary function is a whiskey and cigar bar, but they have the most excellent food. If you get a chance to come here and try their lunch, they open at noon, come here for lunch stay for a whiskey and cigar, you will not regret it. So definitely check them out. Right, Shane?
0: Absolutely. And then if you're fortunate enough, you can get a glimpse of the boardroom where we actually conduct this podcast.
1: Oh, yeah. This is like a secret room. You can ask him, hey, can we see the boardroom? And it's this private room that you would not believe. But it's where we're sitting now. We're all very relaxed. And we're very lucky to have with us today, Russ Bonnet, VP of Global Operations from Relevant Power Solutions. Russ, welcome to the show.
2: Thank you. I'm glad, happy
1: to be here. Yeah, and we are happy to have you because you are a real expert in the turbine power world, right?
2: I've been around a long time. <laughs>
1: <laughs> That's like a true expert. They never call themselves experts, but the way we always like to start this, Russ, is we want to talk to you a little bit about how did you come to where you're at? And I know you got a long and storied history, So, but we don't want to talk about that the whole show. Of course. So, of course. <laughs> so we so could. T- we easily could. This could be the Russ show. and We could talk about just your history because you got a long, illustrious yeah. history, but tell us a little bit about it. Where'd you start out in the business and how'd you get where you're at today?
2: Yeah, I, real quick. I mean, I'm kind of a unique career path. I would say I would start it out as a from where I ended up to where I started. But I really began as a field service electrical technician, starting up these units from I think I was the third electrical technician that Stuart and Stevenson hired. Oh, wow. wow. OK. And then for the gas turbine industry. Right. So basically found my way, you know, starting up at 2500s ultimately five thousands. I like to say I bought my farm on five thousands. And then we went to six thousands, LMSs, mobile gas turbine platforms over the years. But my career basically started out as a gas turbine technician, moved to site management, moved to project management, moved to you know manager of projects, which moved to global execution over all of the aeroderivative gas turbines for a 16-year period, which I'm i supremely blessed for that experience, taking me all over the globe for many years, working with customers, finding solutions, but I'm a very unique career path, but it's taken me in a lot of places and many millions of miles for sure.
1: Yep. And that's why we'll have to do a rush show sometime because you got the best stories about working all over the world. But today we're here to talk about turbine power specifically yes, for the oil field and everything that's going on with electrification in the oil field. So tell us a little bit about RPS and how you guys got into this business, because it wasn't your business to begin with, right? I mean,
2: yes. Yes. Electrification is our business, right? So at the end of the day, we got into this world because electrification is our business. Our units, we can tie to the grid in any U.S., any European, anywhere in the world, just as easy as we can electrify an oil rig station, right? And that's really what the issues were. Our experience at Relevant Power Solutions from, you know, GE, Siemens and all of the other backgrounds that we've had lent itself well. You know, we have a a very entrepreneurial organization, very innovative organization with leaders that know how to invest in the products that the customers need. Now, what does the customer need, right? So, you know, from electrification standpoint, they need very fast, quick power that's movable, reliable. It's gotta, you know, by the time you get all of that equipment out there, it's gotta be, you've gotta know that you can count on it. It's gotta be there when you need it. And it's got to move fast when it goes to rig down and rig up at the next location, whether that be half a mile away or 16 miles away or whatever, you've got to supply that need to the customer very quickly. And it's gotta be reliable. That's how we got into that business.
1: Yeah, it's interesting because, I mean, obviously there's a lot of parallels. I mean, producing electricity is producing electricity, exactly. right? Mm-hmm. But are there specific challenges when you're talking about oil field work? I mean, being more remote and in more desolate locations, does that make a difference
2: or does it matter? It's interesting that you say that because in the beginning, you know, the whole concept of package power, right? You know, in Australia, you go to Australia and you'll find out that you need to package all of your power into one unit because Labor is like two hundred and fifty, two hundred dollars an hour just for an electrician. Wow! So you try to eliminate as much external work as possible, and that's one concept, if you will. But then you go into some places in Colombia, and some at the time, and some places into the African deltas and some of those backwoods areas that you have to work in, and you want to put all of your equipment into one tested piece. For a different reason number one it's very difficult to find capability there's a third reason and that is to eliminate the construction unknowns so the more that you can put on a package external BOP type stuff onto one package the faster and more reliable you're going to be in those remote locations in the backwoods of Algeria and so all of those units were designed to go down quick to eliminate labor and to be reliable And so guess what? Fast forward to the electrical requirements of, you know, as the oil and gas companies desired to get rid of the diesel reciprocating pumps that they use and transfer over to electric, then it became a natural that, hey, why wouldn't this work there? Ultimately, when you go down through the list of all the things you're trying to eliminate and all the things you're trying to solve, then these lent themselves well to that application and that's really how we got into the business because of what we are. And that's the new products we have coming out, which is the M35, just finished testing, and the LT17, which is the next model that's coming out. That's exactly what it was built for, was to, but utilizing all of the things that we just said for the oil and gas industry.
1: Hey, everybody, let me jump in here for a second just to thank our generous sponsors, Juliet Electric Motors. Without their support, this podcast wouldn't even be possible. So for all of your oil-filled electric motor needs, whether that's new motors, refurbs, field work, whatever you need, be sure and give Joliet a call. Remember, that's Joliet Electric Motors, powering today's energy and transition for tomorrow's energy needs. Let's get back to the show. Yeah, and it's interesting because all of those criteria you're talking about, about working in backwoods areas around the world, that's exactly... What you need in the oil field, right? I mean, you want to eliminate, especially because let's face it, guys who work in the upstream chain, back me up on this, you know, they're not electricians. (laughs) They don't know about electricity. I mean, this is the amazing thing to me is because the electrification of the oil field is causing a change of the workforce blend, if you will, because now, if you're going to use electricity for everything, now you have to have industrial electricians and guys who know about electricity on site. Whereas before, if you were running a frack fleet, all you needed was guys who knew diesel motors and yeah, exactly. and frack equipment and pumps, right? I mean.
0: Yeah. Even more so in the midstream market, like you were saying, I mean, those guys, especially, you know, the concept of anything outside of what, a 12 volt DC bus or something along those lines yeah. and going and, and saying, all right, we're well, going to go at 4,160 volt, 6,600 volt, or you know, even, you know, maybe even down the road, you know, high voltage, they get a l- little bit squirrely and concerned about that because. Right.
2: Yeah. And there's some also some salient benefits, but really important in today's world, you know, if you think about it from an emission standpoint of having all of those diesel engines and what the output of those were, consuming all of that liquid fuel, now you're converting it to gas fuel, a little bit cleaner energy, certainly a more efficient, environmentally friendly machine. I think there's some silent benefits for that as well.
1: Yeah, Absolutely. Yeah.
2: So are there any
1: special challenges aside from what you've seen before? I mean, obviously you guys are experts at packaging it up and like you said, getting as much as possible onto the skid so you can just get it out there and hook it up and go. Mm-hmm. Are there any challenges that you hadn't seen before that you had to adjust for here?
2: You know, it's funny because it was a very close fit for me from when I look at what the power needs were in the oil industry and what the power needs were before. You know, you'll see when the first mobile packages, I was actually the product line leader for the GE Gen four. Mm. And the GE Gen four was the first one that went to an oil package. And it was not very well liked, to be honest with you. And at first it wasn't well liked because it didn't have fast setup. Even stairs down to the stairs and platforms, right? We don't want to move stairs and platforms. We don't, we want everything to be right there that we need. So we stand, oh, okay. So we began to incorporate and make all of those items faster and quicker to install. In an energy concept, you know, two weeks, three weeks, four weeks, setup time is really not that big of an issue, right? But in an oil field, it is a massive issue. Oh, yeah, that's money. That's money. Being able to re-rig and rig down and rig back up in a day is a criteria that we had to make our already fast startup units that we're already equipped for that, but actually bring more to, of that fast setup. If you look at our exhaust trailer today, our exhaust trailer in the past, you have to back it in and really spend time to get it. Our exhaust trailer today that on the M35 can basically walk itself across the site. And, you know, you come in, you unhook it, you leave it, you fire up the motor that's on board, hydraulic motor. And with hydraulics, I can walk that exhaust trailer anywhere I want to on that site up until it marries up with the flanges and then bolt it down and and I'm done with it. I don't need external influence. And all of these things we picked up from our oil and gas friends that, you know, trying to get into the market, understanding what we needed to do. But the real big difference for us from an electrification of the oil field. Really, the reliability was already there. Right. The capability was already there. But the issue was, how fast can you rig down and rig back up? Nice. And that's what we learned. And I think that's where we had to really focus in on this design was really the rig speed.
1: Yeah, well, that is incredible. If you can get that set up or broken down in less than a day yeah that's amazing right because what's the average on
2: setting up something like that i just commissioned a 100 megawatt power plant in channel view like yesterday i kind of mentioned that to you before and my first heavy it's an lm6000 a little bit bigger plant but along the same idea except it goes on a foundation and my first heavy lift was on january the 6th so you can imagine still lightning speed for a power plant don't get that wrong but does that work for the oil and gas industry? Absolutely not. It has to be something that is completely self-contained and it's got to be something that can rig down in a day. Yeah. And that's really the big differences that we see.
1: All right. Well, that's impressive. So this this new one that you have coming out, is tested already
2: and is ready to go? I mean, is it in the field? It's just completed testing in the last week. It's in the shop today being wrapped. It's ready to ship and go out in the field. It will go online In about 20 days, we've sold it to a oil and gas customer, basically, who provides those services in the field. And it will be starting up rigs within a month. Can
1: you tell us who that customer is?
2: Lifecycle Power. Oh, yeah. Lifecycle. We had
1: George on here a couple episodes ago. So Mm -hmm. that's fascinating. That is really, really interesting. Yeah. So, I mean, yeah. And what is the... Turnaround time now because you know, there's a lot of problems. Everybody's talking about, like, oh, wait a second, you know, we got supply chain issues, we got all these other issues. So, if I came to you today and I said, Hey, I want one of these new packages you're putting
2: together, how long would I have to wait? That's really a great comment. You know, the world has kind of changed, as we all know, right? It was almost a day when it was about four months ago now when all of a sudden, you know, inflation started hitting. When the inflation came in, that's when the long lead started coming in and a lot of things started changing. Thankfully, though, RPS runs what we call a master plan. And if you haven't locked in your engines and you haven't locked in your generators, basically, you have no future. Right. And I hate to
0: say it, but... Uh, Not long lead time. I'm sorry. I have to interject. (laughs) You have no future.
2: (laughs) (laughs) I don't see how you have future because what happens is, is that your OEMs today the people who make the big heavy pieces are moving their deliveries out to 18 months to 2 years wow i don't know a project i don't <laughs> i don't know a project development time that can as part of the sales responsibilities that i have i don't know a project lead time that can survive a two-year delivery at the moment, right? Yeah, no. I mean. So we have at RPS, like several companies that do, but we have what we call a master plan. And that master plan is buying the long lead equipments, putting us in a position that next year, June, July, we can get you gas turbine power plants online in, in your field, wherever you need it because we have a master plan. Right. And so only now you'd say
1: 12 months, something mm-hmm. like a 12 month lead time,
2: right? Because we're in that cycle, right? Yeah, yeah, If we were not in that cycle, have we not made that master plan? Then you're in a two year cycle.
1: Today. Yeah. Yeah. We've been talking to some people and I'm sure that yeah. we've mentioned before on this podcast, the lead times are a year and a half to two. So,
2: and it's not just lead times that you face, right? You face massive price increases right? So so if you haven't locked them in, not only do you face a 18-month to two-year lead time on some of this very specialized equipment like the gas turbine and the generator, copper prices, changing the way they are, titanium, that's a great part of the internals of the engine, your pricing is going to change as well. That has an effect on every project that we've ever (laughs) dealt with, right? What is your CapEx and how can you manage that? And the longer you wait, the more trouble you're going to be in.
1: Yeah. Is, is yeah. yeah. And so do you see that with your customers? I mean, because like for lifecycle, you quote them a price. It's going to be that same price when you deliver, even though they've ordered it a year ago or whatever it was yeah, yeah. To, to get there. It's going to be the same price, even though your prices ostensibly have gone up. Right. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, yeah. And
2: so because we've been able to lock in that value. Right. But if you don't lock in that value, then there's no way to be profitable unless you pass that along. Right, and that so not only are you going to quote two years, you're going to quote a higher. You're going to have to quote a much higher price. You're not going to be as competitive as my point.
1: Right, and so are you seeing? I mean, you. I don't know. Are
2: you seeing a big increase in demand? I mean, are orders strong? Yeah. So it's great that you mentioned that. You know, remember, electrification is my key word for today, <laughs> because I'm not because RPS is not just solely located in the gas turbine for oil field applications, but also for power applications, and I can tell you that the amount of requirements for proposal generation for inquiries for, you know, the other thing that there's a salient point here. I don't know how aware you are, but in the past, for many, many years, we have dealt with a tremendous amount of inventory that has been held by the OEMs or customers because projects didn't go, whatever. I can promise you today that inventory is exhausted. So that's the third piece of this is, is that now you're facing, the other piece is is that OEMs in general have stopped their master planning. If you go to General Electric today, you go to Siemens today, it's, you're going to find yourself in a situation where it's going to take a very long time because they no longer, I was the master planner, if you will, of General Electric for many years. And so I had my one year plan, my two year plan, my three year plan we're buying engines out one, two, three. And so we would do that. But now today, those master planning long, long long-term, they don't do that anymore.
1: Now, that's strange to me, right? Because why wouldn't a manufacturer do some master planning like that to, like you said, for RPS, You know, lock in your costs, make sure you're going to have everything. Why did they give that up?
2: A lot of it has to do with what you're looking at in marketplace today, inventory and cash inventory and cash are big play right you have to be able to move this equipment and we talked about this just before we started was the market changed and the 2008 to 2014 ish were just horrible years right. for gas turbine markets and so people got stuck with a lot of and stuff stuck, on the shelf stuck right? with right. a lot of stuff on the shelf it sat there for a long period of time and as you know technology moves on and the value of that equipment dropped well it has been able to be sold finally and very few gas turbines exist today that could be picked up off of what we call the gray market. Mm -hmm. But to be clear, that gray market did provide a solution for customers who got into an issue and needed power very quickly. And today that's gone. Wow. There is no more inventory today. So with the longer lead times, because of master planning has pushed out, less inventory, less cash to play with, if you will, that has caused the market to look much different than it did you know, pre-2008, you know, somewhere in that 2010-2014 timeframe. Now,
1: a lot of the people who listen to this podcast, these guys are engineers and operating companies, Mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. So as an expert in knowing the market the way it is now and knowing the volatility of oil and gas prices and Mm -hmm. all of that, I mean, what advice would you give them if they're like, I don't know, we want to electrify our operations, we want to do that. Is it best to go with, you know, just buying something straight out and keeping that asset? Is that a smart play or is rental power a smart play? I mean, you must have some advice for those guys, right? I was kind of
2: thinking about that before we started here. But from my point of view, one of the things that we think of our asset is, is that our asset is clearly a 20, 20 plus year piece of equipment. It's an industrial okay, piece yeah. of equipment that can last. If your business model, if you're sitting there trying to determine what your business model look at, it needs to look like, you know, when we say that we build, electrification is a very important word. It's a theme that I'm using here right. because the oil field is not the only place that needs electricity. And we start thinking about that. If you look at a, at the M35 particularly, and I'm just using that as an, we try to build it closest to a commodity as we can Mm -hmm. across the globe, right? So when you look at it, can we operate in South America? Can we operate here? Yes, absolutely. Can we operate on liquid fuel? Yes, we can. Can we operate on gas fuel? Yes. Can we run water injection in case emissions becomes a requirement in the future? Yes, absolutely. Can we handle an upgrade when the next big engine comes out? Absolutely. These are the things we try to design in to our electrification equipment, right? So that when that day comes, this package has a greater end value. After five years, after it's been utilized in its primary primary function. function, then that asset has a tremendous value because it's got 15 more years left in its lifespan. It can go to a country in Libya, Afghanistan, wherever you want to send it, where these units are operating today. We actually operate a unit, a mobile unit, in Afghanistan, first IPP unit in the world in 40 years. Let's put it that way. Right. So, you know, the whole idea is that if an operator is trying to make a decision, you know, it's not just what they're going to do with it for the next five years. What is the end value of that asset going to be? And if their model can handle that and they think about it from that perspective, then it makes the economics of buying a unit look a whole lot better. Well,
0: that's what's, opinion. that's, what's so crazy that, you know, you would think these OEMs would be chomping at the bit to, to get their production plants going and master planning again, because, you know, previously you, we were talking, you made a comment that you were, you know, how many power
2: plants have you done? I've been responsible for 1200. Ga- I
0: probably. mean, that's an insane yeah. number. So, yeah. I mean, so you're coming at this from a global perspective, a macro perspective, and here in the oil field now, we in here in our own, where we live, mm-hmm. we have this crazy demand for electrification just in the oil field. Mm-hmm. And you know, my question is, how much, you know, how much of the demand that you guys are seeing in you know, RFQs and interest is strictly driven by the oil field versus you know, global power plant or power, power needs?
2: Yeah. So, you know, I think that the, clearly in the West Texas application, let's just pick on a small area, sure. right? That area has recently picked up in a big way. You can go drive down the highways. My team is telling me they can't even get to the job site because they're lined up in 18-wheelers. Wow. You know, just 100 18-wheelers lined up going to job sites, you know, re-rigging, doing other stuff. So it has picked up significantly over the last, and it's really something recent, right? I can say over the last, since the first of the year, this year, it has really significantly picked up in a big way. And as inventories have gone down, as demand has now increased, a lot of the gray market units are gone. There's no other solutions. And I think that's why, That's why. I mean, obviously, demand is driven, you know, what do we call the oil? Co- it's always barrel. How much is a barrel of oil cost? Right, exactly. And that's really where we're seeing that. So yes, demand is picked up. And yes, costs have gone up, but we're seeing it in the oil field. It's hard to say whether that's, it's gone from zero to 100%, because it, it's not quite that, but it has definitely increased significantly in the oil field. And then the electrification all over the world is also struggling as well, right? For it to meet the demands because of the so many changes have happened since the 2008 2014 timeframe.
1: Yeah, and we were talking about that about population growth and how Man. power plants, you know, were designed for a certain amount of mass capacity and now because of population growth, because mm-hmm. of climate change, all of that stuff. But because the demand has increased in certain periods, people are looking to these mobile turbine plants to fill the gap, right? When, like, for example, we could have used some of those in here in Texas last year, right? Yeah, we could. That would have that would have been great. It would have been great. And you
2: know, pre two thousand and eight, I mentioned that before. Right. You know, the world was so definable; it was so easy. Pre two thousand and eight, you know, everything in the world fell into two places, and oil and gas was in there. But everything fell in the world in two places. It was either a, it was what we call planners, and B non-planners. And, play, and it fell into United States, Europe, some Russia, some South Africa, and then it would be the planners. But they always had the 5, 10, 20-year plan. And very little did we play in that. We played 35% of our market was in there. And that was basically some bridge power, as you mentioned before, mm-hmm. when nodal support in those areas. And then also you would find that, you know, some IPPs that needed some steam hosting and those types of areas. So we operated there in some way from an electrification standpoint, but overseas, it's different. 35 megawatts in the United States doesn't mean much, but you go to Guatemala, it means a lot
0: back in the 90s. Yeah, it's and the, the difference and, between having you know, your lights on at night and being and dark. It, right? makes <laughs> a,
2: it, it makes a big difference, right? So what you would find out in those days is that we spent a lot of time. And those and so the non-planners you're know, always asking yourself in February hey did it rain over the summer you know and that was be how you'd plan your year did it rain in South America because they're hydro they're because hydro they're hydro. Is, so yeah, yeah right and, and they get a significant amount of their power from hydro and if it didn't rain you know lack of funds being an issue then you would always go the other thing too is retirement they had no retirement planning because they would run them until something blew up <laughs> and then yeah needed power. those were back in you know back in the time. Right. But and so 2008 was so wonderful because you knew exactly where your load was going to come from. post 2008 is when the world changed. And that's when distributive power, they call it distributive power came in, and that was when all of the solar and the wind, which I am not part of, right? but the solar and wind changed our business forever. and it has, and it will. It will never be the same. However, it is morphing now. And a, do a different thing for some reasons that I'll tell you, but post, you know, 2014, 2016 timeframe, you began to see some things, right? From an electrical standpoint, they, they, the long-term planning has impacted. I don't see the, you know, they say they have it, but there's some reasons I'm going to give you that I don't see them in play as much as they used to be. From a long-term planning impact, you know, the five, the 10, the 20-year plan, you know, regulations change almost weekly right? And so they can change with a vote. They impact how a company invests, you know, over the next X years, right? So how do you build it? You know, if you go to start a big combined cycle, 4,000 gigawatt plant, right? Or if you go to build a plant, a major plant, it's a 10-year investment, right? So when you start thinking about that, you have to know that you're going to be able to recoup all those assets. But those assets really do play into you know, that long-term planning. We talked about the fickle regulations with you, Will. But there's some other things that are coming into play too, like the environmental issues on the batteries now. You know, what do you do? Nobody used to plan on how to demob a a wind turbine. Right, exactly. What the costs were, that would be. Those are different today because now they have to plan that into an overall project. And I mean, just to dismantle one gas turbine in this world today, or not a gas turbine, but a wind Wind turbine, turbine, can cost upwards of $500,000.
1: Well, let me tell you a funny story, because recently I was down in Costa Rica, right? They got some wind power where we were at, kind of in Mm -hmm. North Costa Rica. And it was very funny, because we saw these old Eiffel Tower-looking stanchions with uh, turbines on them. And then we saw the brand new, like, all fiberglass, beautiful ones up there. And I was like, that's weird. I've never seen those two side-by-side like that, you know? And that may be part of it because those older models, I don't even think they were turning. I think they were just like, forget those, man. Let's shut those down and let's build these other ones next to them, right? Because of the cost, right? I mean, that's an expensive operation to tear all that old stuff down. And so, you know.
2: And so I think for me, we've talked about oil and gas, but for me, I think that's providing a for RPS to turn this back into it. It's providing what I see us is bridge. We call it bridge. It's bridge power. You can call it gap power, whatever you want. But you know, February, what happened in February of 2021, right? It showed <laughs> us that we didn't have the right solution here. right? Yeah. We didn't have the right mix, right? We didn't I have mean- the right mix and we didn't have a lot of the right things in place. You know, there was a lot of power plants that couldn't run because they just weren't winterized. They were there, right? but they weren't winterized.
0: Yeah. Weren't municipalities here in Houston, you know, they went down and- the funny thing is, not the funny thing, but the ironic thing is, there was plenty of standby power available mm-hmm. to be utilized, but it wasn't designated for on demand response.
2: Ah. So yeah. maybe if they would have brought them up, if they saw it coming, maybe if they were able to bring it up, they would have had them running and right. warm. But that's so unusual in Texas, right? Why would you do that? But in any case, uh, it's kind of a sidebar. (laughs) It's kind of a sidebar situation. But it's one of the things that I'm trying to say is is that people have now recognized that there are massive gaps. Don't think for a second that didn't affect the oil industry, right?
1: Oh, absolutely. Right. The more we electrify stuff, the more we rely on that. If we have an instance like we had last year, I mean, that would affect everybody because the oil field is going to be out of power too, right? And so, and I think... You know, it's one thing if a large bunch of consumers are out of power and everything's like, you know, thawing out in their freezer and stuff. Mm-hmm. It's another thing if you have to stop operations out there where you're, it's millions and millions of dollars a day. Exactly.
0: So I have a couple questions for you yes, real sir. quick as we're talking. And the first one is as a master planner in your previous life with GE mm-hmm. and, you know, talking about bridge power, or gap power mm-hmm. with everything coming into the marketplace when it comes to power demand, you're talking, you know, EVs. Talking, you know, Bitcoin, we got electrification in the oil field, mm-hmm. you know, including, you know, gas compression and taking diesel offline and, and providing power differently than, in op- than using diesel. How do we bridge that gap to accommodate all this electrification demand?
2: You know, it really comes in, and we have the same problem, right? We have policy changes. We have, it really comes to what is the demand size, right? That's what you have to look at, not here. Not just here, sure. but in other places, right? What is that demand size? And once you can understand that, then you can understand who are the players that supply into those demands, right? And so you forecast basically, there was a time when we knew that 300 peakers a year went into the overall US market from a bridging standpoint. That was easy, right? Okay, right. 300 a year, right. you know, solar is going to get this amount, we're going to get this amount, this, ah, oh, we'll build 50. Okay, so when are we going to build 50? But we have to get back to that somehow. But, you know, that was in the day when you could plan, you could work with inventory, and then you were changing and moving your inventory as economical and as low cost as possible, right? A big company like GE could do that. Now, because of some of the changes in the world, you know, RPS and other companies are being able to take fill that gap, if you will.
1: That's awesome. Well, I think we're out of time, unfortunately, Russ, because... I think we could go on talking about this for another hour. <laughs> this is fascinating. But thank you so much for being on the show today. Yes, sir. It's been fantastic. Yeah, we look forward to... Wait. Oh, I'm getting a signal from my man, Shane. So, He's got another question. I, I had
0: two questions. I don't pipe up much. But the other question is when you're talking about... And sorry, Jim, I appreciate you bringing it back. No, no, no. I think your no. audience would be interested because in this, this is a hot topic, too. Mm-hmm. And it kind of parlays in the conversation when you're talking about the asset life of these mobile units that you're building, you know, mm-hmm. 20, 25 years, right? Mm-hmm. You're trying to be as adaptable and agnostic and universal. Mm-hmm. So how much is hydrogen becoming a part of that dialogue as well? You know, Sorry hydrogen, I had to ask.
2: Uh, no, it's no a, that's a good it's, question. It, it's a great question. I mean, a lot of these gas turbines can certainly operate on hydrogen or some percentage thereof, but from my point of view, I just don't see at least in the next five years, hydrogen being a big player I don't think that technology is just right here. Many people would disagree with me, but from an infrastructure basis, a technology basis, yeah, the capability of a gas turbine to operate there and without a kind of is there, but the capability to be able to pr- produce it and those types of quantities, non-mixed or straight, mm-hmm. it's going to be a while before that kind of supply can be available, if you get my point.
1: Yep. Nope. No, no, it's definitely true. I mean, hydrogen is coming on, but it's like all things, you know, when there's new energy sources coming into the mix, it takes a while, right? I mean, it does, it does. you talk about the transportation, the creation thereof. I mean, yeah, maybe you can set up something out in the field and you can feed some in, but you're not going to be producing anywhere near a hundred percent. You know, they'll be mixing it in, they'll be doing things over time and turbines can obviously take, that. So, you know, that is an important thing for the future. But right now, it's pretty insignificant, right?
2: Yeah. I I mean, I know we want to be able to say yes and go. (laughs) And we do. And we need to. And time will get us there. But, you know, the gas turbine technology can absorb that today in a mix. Right. And there are gas turbines total. But the issue is, it's just time. Yeah. It's just time. Because the volumes that we're talking about here for that kind of an output, And especially when you start talking about oil field, Mm -hmm. you know, difficult locations, you know, vast areas, I'm ever surprised. You know, I spent almost my entire career working outside of the United States and I never really worked in Texas until now. But when I go, I am surprised, just shocked. At the amount of non electrification of a total grid that exists in the Midland area and that whole Permian Basin area. Yeah, it's crazy, right? right. And, and, and you would think that by now that there would be, but it's not there. And mm. it's not there for full support and capability. And I think that over time it will. yeah. But again, it's just not there.
0: So the comment, kind of like analogy, is saying hydrogen is the key. It's kind of like saying if you don't want to pay for high gas prices, go buy an EV vehicle
2: yeah. if you
0: don't have the money to spend
2: on it. I shouldn't say this but from a subsidy <laughs> from a subsidy perspective, you know, where would we be today on wind and I'm just ask you one question as we close, where would we be today on wind and solar if subsidies didn't exist? Exactly. Exactly. And what is subsidies? Subsidies is taxpayer funds, right? Right. So at the end of the day, that's a fickle source, right? So where would we be today without the subsidies for wind?
1: Yeah. And that can change from one administration to the next.
2: That can be completely on or completely off. You know, you don't know. There's the real dilemma for a CEO of a major power company today, oil and gas company included. What do you do, you know, for your long-term investments your 5, 10, 20 years when those regulations continue to change the way they are with the deregulation and all of the things that happen can happen with just one vote?
1: Yeah. Well, I think that's the point why using field gas for turbines or other uses in the field, because now... You're not relying on subsidies for your solar or wind or hydrogen. You're just like, hey, this is everything we have. We already have these assets. Let's depend on ourselves and forget about whether we make some extra money. Yeah, okay. If we can make some extra money by setting up a wind farm and powering some stuff because of subsidies, rock on. But we can't depend on that. Yeah, That's just some icing on the cake you know, if we can in the future. And I think that, you know, all the ESG talk and all of these things, I mean, using gas that you would normally just flare off or try to find some other way to, you know, get rid of and powering operations. Mm -hmm. That's the key. And that's what operators are after right now. Right. It's like, how can we use this waste product for something productive? Yeah. 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 All right, Shane, any more questions? That's it, Jim. <laughs> thank you right, again Russ. for allowing
0: me to interject.
1: No, no, no. That was awesome. Thank you very much, Shane. <laughs> yes. And thank you again, Russ. That was fantastic. Yeah. And I'm sure we'll have you back in the future talking about this again. I'd love to be back. Enjoyed the Yep.
0: Thank you, Rusty. Thank appreciate you. Appreciate Yep. Thanks for listening to today's guest. If you have any questions related to today's episode, please email us at oetpodcasts at worldoil.com. Today's episode is sponsored by Joliet Electric Motor that's been providing an engineered custom motor solutions for the oil field for over 30 years. If you have any questions related to your motor needs, please email me at shaneh at JolietElectricMotors.com.